1: Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Still no good martinis for you. Hope you enjoyed all of yesterday's crazy martinis, even though they weren't exactly good news. Today we've got two more for you. But we're starting off with a bad, which could also be construed as crazy, I suppose, given uh, Joe Biden's penchant for setting easily reachable goals. Uh, First, it was the hundred million jabs in the first hundred days when we were already at a pretty much at a million uh, shots a day clip when he took office. But hey, he got there. So, uh, you know. Congratulations, I guess. And he's actually got there quite a bit sooner than the 100 days. But uh, today, we're looking at opening schools. Uh, The NBC headline was, Biden hits school's goal even as many students still learn remotely, which you declared on the corner today, Jim. A headline that would make Pravda, North Korean state TV, and the DNC blush, but apparently not NBC. So what is uh, the Biden administration crowing about today? Well... The fact that a majority of public schools are now offering classroom learning. Uh, it was 46% when he came into office, and the figure is now a whopping 54%. Uh, you are not exactly impressed. Uh, pundit over at Hot Air is clearly not impressed, saying that uh, you know 85% of these reopenings had already happened. And of course, uh, in the meantime, we got this huge back and forth about what reopening meant Was it one day a week? Is it some schools? Is it five days a week? Uh, It's it's been all over the map as they've tried to set this goal. And uh, I guess if you set the bar low enough, you're going to achieve it most of the time. So what exactly has been achieved here and how impressed or unimpressed should we be?
0: Sure. I I think as you you put it uh, there pretty well that, look, if 85% of what you're bragging about was done before you took office, then you really can't take that much credit. Now, do you want to give Biden some credit for the expansion that's happened? Sure. And I guess I give a little bit of credit to Biden because our listeners probably remember the Jen Saki. <laughs> if he is silent, as I've been reminded, uh, Jen Saki circled back at one point to, to tell us, oh, one day a week would qualify as open. Now, I think if you ask most parents, you ask most students, yes, almost anybody involved in education, one day a week in school is not really uh, open school. Uh, And and it was a CNN town hall where Biden said, I think many of them five days a week, the goal will be five days a week. So I'll give him a, a, a smidgen of credit for setting the goal for five days a week. And he said that, you know, all schools should be open five days a week in September. There's been a little bit of tap dancing about whether that's actually going to happen um now there are a couple of interesting the interesting is that like there's three I, I can find at least three different groups of data for this and they're telling me different things i guess if you're if you want the most optimistic take for the uh the biden administration is from the site called burbio uh which does a first of all, they, have, they the first thing they do is they do a map basically if it's entirely uh all online it's zero if it's hybrid they do give it 50 and if it's uh, uh, fully open, they give it a hundred and then they kind of kind of average it out for the schools in a county. And you can look at the map and see how high it is or how low it is. It's not perfect, but it's not I bad, it's a pretty good way of, of measuring that. Uh, and by their measurements as of May 3rd, which is just a couple of days ago, uh, you know, 3.3% of U.S. kindergarten through 12th grade students are virtual only. That's not that many, which is great. Um, they have 29.6% in hybrid and 67% in districts that are offering traditional in-person everyday schooling. Um, but the thing is that just because a school is open doesn't mean all the kids are going to it. Um, and they pointed out that the number of students who opt out of in-person school. In uh, you know, rural areas, you can in suburban areas, you can get 10 to 30%. Uh, in urban areas, you can get well over 50%. So there's two issues. There's this reopening, getting the school to offer school more than a couple of days a week. And then there's a question of getting all the parents to be okay with sending their kids in. Um, The other thing which is kind of worth noting, if you look at the numbers on the AEI return to learn tracker, you get 4% fully remote, uh, 49% fully open, uh, and 48% that are in hybrid. That's as of April 26th, so that's a little bit earlier. And my gripe with the AEI site is that they put whether it's one day a week or four days a week, that's all hybrid for them. And I think most people would say, okay, there's kind of a difference there Uh, here in Fairfax County. The kids are back four days a week. It's not perfect, but it's pretty good step. And we should also keep in mind there are some school districts in which um, they'd all be in the hybrid category, but certain schools are open two days a week and other schools in the same district are open four days a week. Um, in addition to that, you have these Department of Education numbers, which are uh, actually you know, kind of pleasantly surprised. They're not um, the most generous to the administration, um, and I think the other thing that they point out, like you know, the, the, the at least the, if nothing else, the NBC News article did acknowledge that yeah, the schools are open, but you still got four in ten, almost four in ten students taking all their classes remotely. I assume that's like you know 39 percent. And another 20% are split between classroom and remote learning. You add that up, that's less than half. So less than half of the kids are back in school five days a week. Kind of annoying. Now, if some of them are in that four day a week thing, I'd be like, okay, we're getting pretty close to it. Uh, but that does not appear to be the case here. And it's just deeply, deeply frustrating. Um, we will see how things shake out. But uh, again, it's kind of frustrating. Much like with the vaccination pace, Biden is taking a bow for stuff that was already well in progress before he took office. Oh, by the way, Let's point out the, the AEI map shows this. The Department of Education report says shows this. By and large, the red states have their schools open. By and large, it is the blue states that have their schools either you know in these hybrid format or or the you know, the remaining couple percent that are fully closed. So Biden is taking credit for opening uh, opening schools. But in fact, it's mostly been Republican leaning states and Republican run states that are doing this. And the Democratic ones are the ones dragging their feet.
1: Yeah. And the other thing, uh, I mean, first of all, the idea of uh, crowing about reaching this goal is fun. I mean, we can always play the game of what if a Republican president was bragging about uh, the progress we've seen over the the last hundred plus days or so? Uh, I think the uh, The media would probably, and rightfully so in a lot of cases, pan that. But another thing that we're not talking about between who's in school and and who's still uh, remote learning are the people the school systems have just literally lost track of. Uh, There was a story in The New York Times yesterday. Three million students nationwide, roughly the school-age population of Florida, stopped going to classes virtual or in person after the pandemic began, and a disproportionate number of those are lower income students and uh, in, in some cases minority students, and, and 20% of Chicago high school students are just not in school at all. So, I mean, those numbers are completely uh, separate from everything we're talking about here about in-person and, and, uh, and remote. So uh, there's going to be a reckoning here, and I'm not exactly sure uh, what the impact is going to be, but it's not going to be good, I would suggest. Yeah, Greg, it's just like,
0: I'm old enough to remember when the lost generation referred to those who came of age during World War I. Now the lost generation is the actual kids who are misplaced, like your phone, your
1: wallet, your glasses, your keys, and that one sock in the dryer. The repercussions are going to be massive here, but uh, we do have some good news, and that's that we... Have a great sponsor in Porter Road. Uh, look, uh, you can skip the meat on those foam trays at the grocery store. You know, it's pretty good, but you can skip that and enjoy craft meat without even leaving your house. Porter Road has you covered from weeknight staples to weekend cooking projects and everything in between. Uh, look, Porter Road is an online butcher shop that delivers high quality meat directly for you. And that's because chefs and butchers Chris and James started Porter Road 10 years ago as a local nashville butcher shop with a mission to fix a broken food system
0: now for 10 years they have tweaked and tuned their process to bring you an exceptional piece of meat all while building a more sustainable system for farmers in the planet they work with trusted local farmers to ensure animals are raised the right way humanely on pasture with no added hormones or antibiotics From there, Porter Road dry ages all of their beef and hand cuts each steak and chop using old world butchery techniques to produce cuts you simply will not find at your local grocery store. So you can shop like you would a local butcher and order items a la carte, or you can choose from curated subscription bundles that always ship for free. There is no commitment and you can customize your frequency. Plus steaks and chops arrive fresh
1: and never frozen. Yeah, that was a pleasant surprise. They didn't come frozen. They came fresh. We've had the chance to uh, have some of the Porter Road meat. Uh, Mrs. Karumbas made steaks on the grill, and uh, we were raving about them for not just hours, but like the next couple of days about how great those things turned out, which is a credit to her grilling ability, but it's also a credit to the quality meat that you get from uh, Porter Road. Uh, and right now, Porter Road is offering Three Martini Lunch listeners $20 off your first order of $100 or more if you go to Porter Road.com dot com slash martini. Go to porterroad.com slash martini for $20 off that first order of $100 or more. Again, that's porterroad, P-O-R-T-E-R-R-O-A-D dot com slash martini. All right, Jim, let's talk about our first bad martini. And this is one of those head smashing into the desk martinis because uh, just when you think things are going well, in come the politicians and the regulators. The Biden administration is endorsing a plan put out by the World Health Organization to pause the patents for the vaccines and let other companies run with the ball in order to try and uh, boost vaccine production. And so, you know, Pfizer, Moderna, and yes, they got some money through Operation Warp Speed, so the taxpayers uh, did help with the process, obviously. But they uh, put everything else in their research, or a lot of it on the back burner, so they could devote everything to this development and clinical trials and everything else. and And now that they're about to go global in a bigger way with the vaccine, uh, and we just saw—I think it was last week—that they've made about three and a half billion dollars in revenue, not profits necessarily, but revenue. Apparently, it's time now to just strangle this. Uh, capitalist effort in the cradle here because, Jim, we'll never have another uh, pandemic or anything. We're not going to need these companies ever again to try and uh, you know do what's right for humanity here. So let's just uh, kneecap them here and take their stuff.
0: Yeah. Uh, my colleague, uh, David Harsanyi, has a very good column where he says this is basically state-run theft. You invent something, you develop something, you create something, and the government says, well, we think this is such a good thing. Everybody should have it. So we're taking away your patent and we'll allow anybody to make it. I do think though that more than, uh, perhaps a more kind of tangible and significant from that is that the idea that this is gonna make a significant difference in getting vaccines out to people demonstrates people don't understand how this vaccine is made. And I'm reminded of my colleague, Kevin Williamson's observation. Everything looks really easy when you don't know the first flipping thing about it. If <laughs> he didn't say flipping. Um, so, just for perspective, again, I assume we have a very well-read, well-educated, news junkie audience. I assume most of our listeners know that the creation of these vaccines is not easy. But let's assume that you don't. Assuming you don't have no idea what this you know, idea of rescinding the patent means, it means that every pharmaceutical company that has already gotten its specially designed and custom-built equipment designed for DNA cold storage the bacterial broth vats, the DNA harvesting, the quality testing equipment, the separate DNA filter equipment, the freezers packaging and shipping infrastructure, the processing plants that turn the DNA into RNA, the enzyme transcription machines, the MNRA testing facilities, a second set of packing, freezing, and shipping infrastructure, and then the oily lipid production equipment, all of which has to be built precisely to the specifications for this particular vaccine. Now, anybody can do that, Greg. <laughs> you and I should go into business. Let's do this. What do we need? Oh, what's that? A billion. A billion dollars of pre-existing infrastructure. Oh, okay. Never mind then. That's gonna you know, this is like saying, great news, Ford. We've taken away the patent on Lamborghinis. Go turn the you know, the the Ford escort plant into make Lamborghinis or something like that. All of the equipment has to be specifically designed, built, and designed to specifications to do exactly this. You can't just say it's like saying to a fireworks factory, "Hey, I want you guys to start making ICBMs." It's not the <laughs> same thing. It's not the same stuff. You can't do it now. Could all these other companies start the process of developing all these machines to begin this process? Sure, but look at what Pfizer's doing. Look at what Moderna's turning doing, and yeah, let's look at Johnson and Johnson, even though they've kind of lagged behind the others on this. It's not a simple process. It's not a cheap process. It's not the sort of thing that you can just cook up in your garage. So this idea, like the whole time, the patents have not really been the obstacle in getting, creating these vaccines and getting them out. The real problem has been that this requires a whole bunch of specialized uh, equipment and it takes time to develop it. It takes time to make it. And you have to have a lot of steps for quality control. And, uh, you know, could could we see, I, I could see from this ruling a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, more companies making these vaccines. I'd like to think that a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, this vaccine, this, this pandemic is a much much lesser deal, not just here in the United States, but all the way around the world. So um, it, it really is another case of the Biden administration making a big, bold announcement that doesn't actually change the facts on the ground very much. I suppose you could argue that down the road, this will have a significant impact. But the other thing is like, I mentioned this in yesterday's Jolt where, you know, Robert Reich was complaining that Pfizer made $3.5 billion in profit on its uh, vaccine, uh, which I, I, I ran the numbers and it came out to like eight bucks a dose. Does that seem unreasonable, Greg? No. Like no. I, I got 10 in my wallet right now. I'll give it to him right now. They saved the world. This is re- it's kind of really a big deal. Oh, by the way, Pfizer had the I, I, I you know, and it's not just because I took the Pfizer one, although I like to believe you know, I feel the same way if I didn't get it. Pfizer appears to be the best one. Moderna is like it's like ninety six percent versus ninety five percent. It's not, not a huge difference. Moderna is still pretty darn good too. Johnson and Johnson, okay, it's a little bit further down, but it's only one dose. It's easier to ship. It has certain advantages that the other ones don't. We're gonna hear a from about Novavax. Um, I was pleasantly surprised as surprised as anybody. The Russian one works, and the Chinese one is a coin flip. Uh, good luck, you you know. Oh, and the Oxford one is good. Uh, Even though the Europeans are freaking out about it because apparently they're much more anti-vax than they let on. But anyway, Pfizer did like the best possible job when the world was in this giant, really kind of either unprecedented or nothing quite on this scale had been seen since the great influenza pandemic of, of the last century. You know, guys, eight bucks a dose. Here, here, enjoy it. You know, you know what? If you help develop the vaccine for Pfizer, you should not be buying a beer for yourself for the rest of your life. It's Miller time, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Hell, get those guys old
1: Milwaukee because it doesn't get any better than this. <laughs> Very good. Now, a uh, couple of thoughts rattling around in my head on this. First of all, has the World Health Organization gotten anything right? Uh, in this entire process. I mean, nobody's shocked that they're going with this collectivist approach to this. Uh, They don't understand the free market, never really have. Uh, The other thing, of course, that uh, comes to mind is that you mentioned it takes about a billion dollars of infrastructure to get ready to actually do this. And so you said the I word, Jim, are we going to hear now that vaccines are infrastructure and add a a few dozen billion to the bill so all these other pharmaceuticals around the world can uh, can get up to speed here?
0: Well, I'll make one... So apparently the the developments we've seen in the COVID-19 vaccine could open up the door to a whole bunch of other medical research developments, including ones taking on cancer, including ones that could be much more effective against influenza, all kinds of uh, stuff like that. So really, you could, you know, there's an argument you could say that actually, hey, this is a really, you know, of all the things government can spend money on this could be something that could really pay dividends down the road. So if somebody wanted to say, hey, like I said, the problem is that all of these things, it's not like you can build the generic, I guess some of this equipment can be repurposed with minimal effort. Um, I did a little bit of research this in the course of this pandemic, although they're probably there, you know, go, go talk to an expert on this. Um, but by and large, you know, a lot of this medical equipment, as I said, has to be you know designed for a particular kind to get a particular kind of, um, uh, you know, lipid or or MBNA, DNA, or or various process. You know, each stage of this process, the equipment's got to be specially designed. If you could build generic stuff that you could easily repurpose for one step or another, maybe uh, that would be useful. And of all the things, you could spend money on infrastructure. And you can't see I'm making air quotes as I say that. Um, that could be one of the better ones. But you know, you considering how Democrats like to spend money, just pretend I didn't say that. Just ignore all this, everything I said, folks.
1: All right. Well, what you can't ignore is the huge savings you can get on MyPillow towel sets. Uh look, I mean these towels are fantastic. They are big, they're fluffy, they're super soft, they're amazingly absorbent. They're they're just as good as towels as you're gonna find anywhere, and probably better. So wrap yourself in the soothing, soft feel of the My Pillow towel, and right now. You can get a six-piece towel set, regularly $109.99, now just $44.98, a massive savings of $65 when you use the promo code Martini at MyPillow.com. MyPillow towels are made from proprietary technology that makes them highly absorbent and
0: soft without that lotion-y feel. They're made from cotton that is grown right here in the United States. They're available in a variety of colors. They have a 60-day money-back guarantee and a one-year limited warranty, and each set includes two bath sheets, two hand
1: towels, and one two-pack washcloth. So go to MyPillow.com and click on the Radio Listener's Square, enter the promo code Martini, or call 800-874-0104. While you're there, you can take advantage of the deep discounts also on all MyPillow products, including the Giza Dream bedsheets, MyPillow Premium Pillows, and the new My Slippers. Get your MyPillow six-piece towel set for only $44.98, but only with our promo code Martini. Call 800-874-0104 and use the code there, or do it when you visit MyPillow.com today. All right, Jim, on to our second crazy martini. And if it was just the idea in general, this might even be a good martini. But of course, the Democrats have to go and ruin everything. We have groused for a long time about why exactly do Iowa and New Hampshire get to have such a huge influence on uh, the presidential campaigns every four years? And so, I mean, a lot of people get winnowed out because they don't do well in Iowa. They don't do well in New Hampshire. Those are the states where you don't have to spend a ton of money to try and make a splash. And if you don't do well there, well, you're pretty much done. And there's 48 other states to go. I mean, just look at last year. Biden did horribly in both states, still ended up the nominee. So maybe you don't necessarily need them to win, but you do need a pretty big organization to be able to bounce back from that. And so... We've also said that, you know, you should be able to know who actually won the Iowa caucuses, uh, which has not been very common lately on either side of the aisle. But now the Boston Globe is reporting that uh, the Democratic National Committee is seriously debating whether to demote Iowa and New Hampshire in presidential primaries. And you're thinking, okay, finally, some other states get to get to weigh in first. But of course, the Democrats aren't worried about who gets to weigh in first. Unless they're not white enough. So let's go in with the Boston Globe here. Uh, Many Democrats, including some who ran in 2020, say those states shouldn't hold the nation's first nominating contest because their majority white populations don't reflect the Democratic electorate. Those debates are taking place behind the scenes. At the DNC, as party leaders, including former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid of Nevada and Representative Jim Clyburn of South Carolina, both say states like theirs should appear sooner on the primary calendar. And, of course, you've got folks like uh, the chairman of the New Hampshire Democratic Party, who happens to be the husband of uh, Senator Gene Shaheen, uh, saying, no, New Hampshire really needs to stay exactly where it is. For exactly the reasons I mentioned earlier, Jim, and that's that uh, if you don't have all the money in the world, you can still uh, get your message out and have a chance to build some momentum there. So uh, what do you make of the Democrats actually looking to possibly shuffle the lineup and the, of course, identity politics basis for doing so?
0: Yeah, I can't stand the identity politics basis. I do find the idea of changing up the order appealing. I suppose if I lived someplace beside, if I lived in Iowa or if I lived in New Hampshire, I'd feel differently, but I don't. Um, I also think that with the the absolute disaster that was the Iowa Caucus last year, by the way, Greg, remember when the Iowa Caucus not having results for 24 to 48? Remember, we thought that was going to be the big disaster of <laughs> yeah. 2020 was a simpler and more innocent time. Um, it was it was an omen of what was to come for the rest of the year. Uh, you look people have made this complaint every four years. And the reason you haven't really seen that much momentum for it is that anybody who wants to be president is afraid of speaking ill of Iowa or New Hampshire because if anybody ever you know hears that you ever said, well, I don't think Iowa or, or New Hampshire should go first, people in Iowa and New Hampshire won't vote for you. And of course, if you lose Iowa, up until very recently losing Iowa and New Hampshire was considered okay, if you don't win at least one of them, you're probably not in the running. If you don't finish at least second in one of those two, you're probably not going anywhere. And of course, you know, Joe Biden has defied the world after getting pretty much not just losing, but kind of blown out in Iowa and New Hampshire and Nevada. Uh, somehow Joe Biden managed to pull it together. So maybe the old patterns of politics aren't as the same. And maybe winning Iowa isn't as big a deal. Maybe winning New Hampshire isn't as big a deal. Uh, I think a couple of years ago, they stopped doing the Ames straw poll. Uh, but, you know, there's some argument that this, um, these two states have exerted just such a wildly uh, excessive role in the presidential selection process, uh, and that the people, the kinds of candidates who appeal to these voters in these states are not necessarily representative of who was going to appeal to uh, members of the party in other states. Um, for a really long time, the Iowa, Republican party, the Iowa Republican caucus was generally whoever was most appealing to Christian conservatives. Now, they're a very important constituency within the Republican Party, don't get me wrong, but the problem was, you know, I think I remember Pat Robertson winning and Pat Robertson did not go in on to enjoy enormous success. You can look at Mike Huckabee, you can look at Rick Santorum. By and large, like, you know, if, you, like, if you win that caucus, it's like you're one, running for the presidency of evangelical Christian America. And Republicans are looking for somebody to be president of the entire United States, not just the you know, one particular faction. Uh, New Hampshire, as one guy, one of consultants once described me, almost every Republican in New Hampshire is wearing a red flannel shirt, and he's got three days' growth, and he's got a part-time business running a snowplow. Uh, that's a that's a that's a cliche. It's a stereotype, but that is a chunk. And the only thing they want to know about is Are you going to cut my taxes? Right. So you you've got these two, and yeah, are they are they important? Yes, but it's really kind of weird that the first two contests don't really have a big city. Sorry, Des Moines. Sorry, Manchester. You don't count. And you could even say, looking at the first four contests, the only one that really counts as a big city is Las Vegas. Um, Years and years ago, I went through and said, if you wanted to have a a primary process that allowed those who don't have a lot of funding to jump in in an inexpensive state and, and build momentum gradually, and if you wanted to make it Uh, kind of interesting until the end, if you wanted to make sure that it didn't get resolved after the first four contests or something like that, then what you would do is you'd set up a system where the smallest states with the fewest delegates at stake would go first. Good news for New Hampshire. I was sorry, good news for um, Delaware, good news for Hawaii, Uh, good news for like North Dakota. Uh, Ironically, Iowa and New Hampshire would not be too far behind in this process. And you would end with the Texas and California and New York and those big states. Well, like Texas and California and New York, those are all because of the bigger states. They're also the most expensive states. And a state like Delaware, which consists of three counties You can drive through it in about an hour. You know, you could be oh, that's an easy place. You could do a lot of on the ground campaigning. So I laid this out. And as far as I can tell, Greg, absolutely nobody took this seriously or said, yes, we should do something like this. I don't think the process is ever going to begin. And I do, while I completely love the idea of blowing up the current structure and giving more Americans a bigger say earlier in the process, and hopefully this avoids the crazy front loading, um, I do think the idea of, well, Iowa and New Hampshire are too white is a dumb reason to do it. But probably representative of our identity politics obsessed era.
1: Wow. Well, I think you're you're right about that. The identity politics is is clearly uh, is clearly ridiculous. But I'm not surprised that the DNC is going there. Uh, I do have someone here, Jim, who wants to uh, issue a correction. Jim Pat Robertson did not win Iowa. Bob Dole won Iowa. Pat Robertson came in second. You know it. I know it. The American people know it. Okay,
0: so did Pat Robertson win the Ames
1: straw poll? He may have won the straw poll. He came okay, in second. He yeah, actually fixing those he, two up there. He finished ahead of Bush in the caucus, and that's why Bush was uh, in desperate straits heading up to New Hampshire. And until he pulled that off, uh, his he was kind of on the ropes. But uh, yeah, Pat Robertson won the 1987 Iowa straw poll. So there you go. Yes, yeah, so that would have been yeah the summer before the the caucus in the middle of the winter. Yeah, so there you go. There is a. That, uh, that actually happened. Pat Robertson finishing second in uh, in the actual caucuses and won the straw poll. So amazing stuff. We'll see if this actually happens. There's a lot of pull in these states. Uh, there are two states that uh, are actually competitive on the national scale. Uh, so uh, one party abandoning them at the top of the order might uh, have some impact. I don't know how much, but uh, fascinating to watch. And uh, my, my whole point has been, if you can't tell me who won the last contest in your state, Maybe you shouldn't get to go first the next time, but uh, uh, anyway, maybe they'll get it right the next time, or at least be able to tell us who won in the same week that the caucus happens. We'll, We'll find out. Jim, have a good day. We'll see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Uh, Don't forget to subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast if you don't already. Very grateful for those five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Find us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Thursday, and please join us on Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch. There always seems to be something crazy going on in the news. But don't worry, we're here to help break it down for you. Gas prices are beginning to skyrocket as demands grow. People are going out more as mask mandates are starting to be lifted. And politics is taking over television. Hey, it's the Chicks from the Chicks on the Right podcast. Download and subscribe to our daily podcast to hear us pick apart and pick on the news of the day. Politics to pop culture, nobody's safe. But it's all fun. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, one more bit of good news, Andy, and that is the fantastic deals you can find at 4 slash martini, including their signature offer right now, a free solar panel with the purchase of the Patriot Power Generator 2000X, and of course, free shipping on all orders over $97. You want to be prepared. You don't want to get caught unprepared. Twenty times faster than normal. So visit fourpatriots.com/martini to get your Patriot Power Generator 2000X with the free solar panel included. Plus, get free shipping on orders over ninety-seven dollars. Save more and get peace of mind now by going to the number fourpatriots.com/martini. That's fourpatriots.com/martini.